Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcasters, which includes me. Um, this is Sam Chamlin. Um, it is good to be back. I have been away for a little bit, but good to be back on the pod. And joining me today is Anna. What's going on, Anna? I'm so glad to have you back, Sam. It's a oh. great to have three hosts, and it's been fun to work with Derek, and it's fun to work with you. So, It is a hoot to just be able to listen to a pod that I didn't have to record. I'm very much enjoying that process. So, so Derek, so, wherever you are, enjoy. <laughs> At some point, I want that experience too. Just, just saying. It's coming. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you really want to turn me and Derek loose on an interview all by ourselves? I mean, is that actually? <laughs> I might take that back. That it's sounds fair. dangerous. So, but it is good to be back. But it is even even gooder <laughs> to welcome our guest for today. The Reverend Duncan Hilton is joining us. And Duncan, it is a joy to have you today. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Anna, for welcoming me. It is it is great to have you today. And so. Duncan is uh, is the priest in charge at St. John's Wal- Walpole in New Hampshire. Um, and before that, he served as priest for discipleship and discernment at St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. Um, and so we got to know Duncan a little bit through the Wake Forest um, uh, Food, Health, and Ecological Well-Being. We found ourselves around some tables um, hanging out there. Um, and so we were hoping we could have a conversation with Duncan about a little bit about what rural ministry l- looks like, um, about his experience of coming to uh, the food and faith movement through uh, the Episcopal Church, and also some of the writing that he's done and, and reflecting on on rural ministry in his area. And so, Duncan, we're looking forward to having that conversation today. Thanks again for being a part of this. Sure. So we're going to start where we always start, which is, what is your geography? Whether this is the geography of your childhood or the geography that you currently have found yourself in, what is the things about the land, the food, the people, culture that has formed you to be who you are today. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Durham, New Hampshire, which is on the, the seacoast. I think New Hampshire has 13 miles of seacoast. Um, it's also home to the University of New Hampshire. So Durham looks a lot like other New England college town. There's a lot of brick. There's soccer fields and football fields and woods um and part of the geography that shaped me or just was a a deep draw to the woods even though the ocean was nearby um i'm pretty pale going to the beach was never very fun um so i just knew man the ocean is not my thing but i would i would sneak into the woods as a kid with my bible and um i grew up in the ucc the congregational church and yeah, part of the geography of that New England town was the white clabbered, black shuttered UCC church in the center of town. We lived within walking distance, um, but I hated church. It was boring. I played sports. Um, I was deeply curious about God and the Bible. I hated Sunday school. I was bad at art projects. So I would, and my family was fairly secular. Um, I, Yeah, it was sort of the it was the nice thing to do. And I think this, the social life meant something, but we weren't a family that prayed, which is all to say, that's why I would sneak away with the Bible. Cause I, mm-hmm. it felt very weird in my context to be really into scripture. Um, so I, I feel like part of my 
the geography was both those woods, but also the geography of the Bible and my curiosity about it and the way that made me feel like an outsider. Um, and I, I specifically remember reading um, the call stories and wondering like, well, why would anyone drop, you know, why would someone drop everything to follow Jesus? Um, mm. And that become that like, and I want to do that or like, I want to meet this guy because <laughs> he must've been pretty amazing. Um, so the other geography that shaped me was the house that I now live in, um, in Southern Vermont. My grandmother moved here in the fifties. Um, they were transplants from New York. Originally it was a summer home. My grandparents got divorced in the sixties. Um, and when that happened, um, my grandmother moved here full time. My mom had five siblings and, um, one of my uncles became a dairy farmer. The other became a landscaper. He lives down the road. And um, my aunt Mimi, who lives down the road in the other direction, um, runs my uncle John's the farm store. Um, he, he made Gouda cheese. So that's all to say I would, you know, I think in a lot of people's mind, New Hampshire and Vermont are very similar. But if you live here, they're very different. Um, mm -hmm. especially if you live on the seacoast, which, you know, feels a little bit more like Massachusetts. So that's all to say I would take this three hour trip and it was, um, yeah, going to a different landscape, to the woods, to the mountains. It felt like going back in time. My, um, uncle John would collect a lot of the farm, uh, equipment of the, all the farms that were closing around here. So I think it, it shaped me to have a sense of history you know, I would, as I got older, I would visit and just sit in those barns and to be like, amongst, like these plows and stuff is like not coming from a farming family. It's like, I don't even know the names of this. There's like a lot of leather. There's a lot of sleighs. It's just like, it's like being in a museum, except you're in a, a barn. And so it just shaped me that, wow, people used to farm here. There's a thread of that in my family through my uncle John, but um, this world is is gone too, um, mostly. And I think my grandmother was a real Luddite. Um, she like heated by wood stoves. We'd go to visit and it was just freezing because she would, she basically <laughs> lived in like two rooms, but when we'd visit, she'd like open up the part of the house that she never heated. So I'd have to share a bed with my brother. It was just freezing. Um, so that sense of um, and the, the farmhouse is from the 1830s. Um, so that the house itself has a real sense of history. So, um, I'm kind of going on here, but I, uh, New Hampshire shaped me, Vermont shaped me. And, um, yeah, this sense of, of history and of place, um, in high school, I got to spend a semester at the mountain school, which is in Vermont. And it's similar to other high school sort of boarding schools, except that in the afternoon you farm instead of, or you work on the farm instead of playing sports or some other extracurricular activity. So that gave me a, and they have a whole curriculum around like local agriculture and landscape. So I started to learn about the history of Vermont and how, you know, 20%, you know, I think now or what they taught us then it was like 80% of Vermont was, um, fields hundred years ago and 20% was woods and now it's switched. Um, 
where you know 80% is woods and 20% is fields. Sorry, I can't remember if I just misspoke there, but um, regardless, just a sense of like, oh my goodness, the landscape can change so quickly and so vastly. Learned there a lot about climate change. So I think it just shaped me to realize, man, our, we don't, you know, being 16, it's like, I don't, the future looks pretty grim and I'm part of the problem <laughs> or my, my country and culture. So I, a lot of ethical issues around like, what does it mean to lead a good life? Mm. Um, and then just having a lot of fun harvesting potatoes and, they just had us like helping to run the school. Basically we were, you know, would help the cooks with meals. So also just learning like the real joy of farm life. And I should mention my uncle's farm, John's, I, uh, we'd go there and, you know, guys, people would be, guys would be chewing tobacco. There's like country music on. It was like a very different scene from my grandmother's farm, which is basically a gentlewoman's farm with chickens and, you know, animals, but she also read the New Yorker and National Geographic. It was a very different scene. So I think I early on picked up like a lot of the class differences around farming. Um, that is cool. And my, yeah, my uncle John offers sleigh rides. So he, you know, he said he can make in a day of giving sleigh rides to tourists what he can earn in a month selling cheese. Um, and a lot of those people are coming up from New York and New Jersey and they're going to the ski mountains and, um, you know, his farmhand meanwhile is living in a, you know, trailer and, you know, rent someone else's property. So yeah, part of my, what's formed to me is the awareness of a lot of the disparities around farming in this corner of the world. Um, so two questions I have for you. Number one, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned dairy cows, and that is an ongoing theme in this pod. So I need to know what kind of cows your 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 family had. <laughs> yeah. So my my uncle John had Holsteins and Jerseys. Um, one other place that shaped me personally is I, I lived in a Camp Hill community in Ireland. Um, that was my my experience regularly That's milking. Cool. We just had one cow. Um, Camp Hill is like large. It's an international network of communities that care for people with disabilities based in Rudolf Steiner's curriculum. So that's all to say we had a Jersey there, but yeah, my John, my John was Jersey's and Holstein's. Such, such wonderful New England cattle for sure. <laughs> and the second thing I want to ask you about is how did you end up an Episcopal priest? Um, oh man, what's the, the podcast length version? Uh, let's see. Well, <laughs> not the I, whole seminary, you know, yeah, like exactly. 20 page paper version. Yeah. So Elevator. let's see, where was the choice point? Um, I'm sorry to say this, Sam, part of it was deep disillusionment with the congregational church. Um, I could take it. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there were a couple threads. Um, one, I was, I went to Harvard Divinity School and I went to Harvard College. And at both those times I worshiped some at the Episcopal Monastery in Cambridge. Yeah. So there's incense, there's singing the Psalms, um, there's morning prayer and evening prayer and noonday prayer and Compline. I just fell in love with the the high church aspect of being Episcopalian. I still, I love the UCC. You know, I love the, I think in many ways I have a congregationalist heart. Um, so it took me a while to kind of admit my higher church leanings. Um, another thing that happened is I got a job with the Episcopal church um, before I was Episcopalian. Um, that makes a difference. 
Yeah, it does. <laughs> Getting paid. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't paying me to go to church, but they were paying me to do community organizing training as part of their Episcopal Service Corps program. Um, so I started hanging around with the Episcopalians. And then I showed up at a church um, in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is near Perkins School for the Blind. There were a lot of folks with disabilities there. Um, there was a woman priest who had a beautiful voice and she would sing, you know, chant the communion liturgy and to watch people with disabilities going up to the um, altar to receive bread and wine and being, you know, wheeled by other people. It was just, it was like, man, this is beautiful. And in the UCC, I don't get to go up to the altar um, and we don't get to chant the communion liturgy. So that was kind of, that pushed me over the edge. See now, now if if that's the pitch, then I'm I'm at least interested in the Episcopalian, <laughs> the Episcopalian church. Yeah, it's a good pitch. But yeah. I will say, yeah. But I say, you know what? The UCC, we're 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 winning the argument because we believe everybody's really a congregate congregationalist <laughs> at heart. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> there are many ways to be Christian, and that is a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. Each of yeah. our traditions offer something rich and deep. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but I'm, I'm just fascinated by your story about, you know, sort of your, your family's history and, you know, these these really solid and deep New England roots that, that took you to the Episcopalian Church. But then also, you know, have have you thinking about social justice and food and the history of our places? And so just all of that coming together in one big stream for you. Yeah. Um, one really of the most influential people in my life, probably given that I'm living in her house, is my grandmother. And she was the first person who I said I want to be a minister too. Mm -hmm. I was 16 years old. I just heard William Sloan Coffin. You know, there's a UCC shout out. Uh, I he heard is. him preach <laughs> and um, was like, I want to be like that guy. And she, this was when I was in Vermont at this high school semester program, at the mountain school. And she took me out for lunch. And I said, I think she asked me, what do you think you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be a minister. And she laughed. And uh, she said, that's the fast track to middle-class respectability. And uh, she was like, good luck. And um, she Whoa. had, her father had been a professor at Yale Divinity School. And I think she just hated everything about organized religion. I remember shortly before her death, she was like, man, don't let them give me, you know, a church service. Those ministers just talk too long. And, you know, it's a bunch of BS. So that's all to say, I feel like I have a her I don't, it's dangerous to say I have something to prove, but her criticisms of the church hang over me all the time. And I, they're quite valid. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is fascinating. So I would love to hear a little more. And you wrote a beautiful article, which we'll link to in the show notes about that. You are now literally, I think the, the room you're in is, I want to say maybe her kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we can see on, see on Zoom and that you're now living in this, this place, this geography that shaped you. Um, but you're also still a priest and you're leading in the church. And um, how are you reconciling those two things, especially hearing that her voice is, I, I would think her voice might be that really useful voice of critique that we, all of us in the church need to keep hearing mm -hmm. um, be about inequality and injustice 
or about like that ministers talk too long. I mean, like that's valid too, right? Like, <laughs> um, so what is that looking like reconciling yeah, those parts well, of yourself? On the, the best days, um, it looks like something that happened about a month ago. Um, when I lived in Ireland, we celebrated Michaelmas, which I'm not sure low, these, you low church folks necessarily know, but you know, St. Michael's day is November or September 29. And, um, at least in Ireland, it had all these associations with harvest and that sort of thing. So I had a, a Michaelmas party here. I invited people from my parish, which is about 50 minutes away. Um, and then one of my other projects is to try and help found a large community, um, here. So there were folks, of all abilities here. And we did, you know, all sorts of pandemic protocols. We had an egg race and, uh, you know, an apple hunt and a big bonfire that we didn't actually light because it was too warm, but uh, we built anyway. So that was, there was some sort of reconciliation there because I feel like I was able to bring the threads of my call around caring for the land and devotion. Um, we talked a little bit about St. Michael's and he had a skit um, and, and then working with people with disabilities. I think on a difficult day, it, it doesn't feel reconciled. Um, it's really hard to be working in New Hampshire and living in Vermont. It's not hard, but A, it's a 50 minute commute. Yeah. I don't, you know, the, I feel like I have a Benedictine spirituality in many ways. So it's funny to be trying to root in land in one place, but the church is just sh shrinking. So it's, um, there are only so many available parishes and um, the diocese of New Hampshire has been wonderful, but um, I I think if I'm gonna try and serve churches, I just need to be willing to drive pretty far um, yeah. or else make this plot of land the focus of my ministry. And you know, there may be a choice point where I have to do one or the other, but right now I'm trying to do both, so. We connected and got to know each other through uh, Wake Forest uh, School of Divinity, hanging out in an intensive, and it was around those tables um, that I discovered not only um, were we both in ministry and had something to say to each other, but we both are both big fans of Bill Simmons, as I remember correctly. <laughs> so, and you have been you have been a guiding light in terms of how how we do this pod. You've been that little voice in the back of my head. Um, but we reconnected because um, I saw that you had begun writing with the Collegeville Institute, um, and it sounds like a lot of what you're doing around trying to figure out the food and faith movement and where you're at in rural ministry and making sense of your ministry um, is really coming out through your pen. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience with Collegeville um, and how you got hooked up with them um, and some of the work that, that you're doing now in terms of, uh, I, I, if I understand correctly, you're being, you're writing some essays and being coached and, uh, and real and are one of their emerging writers. And so I wanted to know a little bit about your history with uh, Collegeville. Yeah, thanks. So um, a couple of years ago, the mentor priest in Brattleboro, where I worked, said, oh, you should go to one of these writing workshops um, at Collegeville. And I I love reading, um, you know, love trying to write better, certainly sort of see it as a craft and um, want to improve at my craft constantly. So the one I was drawn to ended up being in Mississippi. So I confess, I've never been to Collegeville in Minnesota. I have their tote bag um, that they gave us in Mississippi, but 
I haven't been to that campus, but my, what was powerful about that experience was that the teacher there talked to us about publishing books, you know, and there were like conversations about working with editors. And I'd never thought of myself as someone who could or might ever sort of be a, a writer in any professional way or, um, so it's just very powerful to have other people taking me more seriously than I'd ever taken myself. It was also just a joy to spend time, you know, writing for four days with people. And as a New Englander to spend time in Mississippi to see cotton fields was really mm. powerful thing. Um, and then because I got on their email list a couple months later, I learned that they had what they were calling an emerging writers program and there, there are four of us in the cohort and we, Michael McGregor is the writing coach and we meet with him once a month. We meet together as a, a cohort. Um, I think it's about once a month. And, um, and then Collegeville is part of the application and acceptance. They've made a commitment to publish six pieces of work by us and, you know, we're coached on them. So it's, it's like, Hey, well, we'll make you a published writer, but we also know you need some help because um, you're very new at this. So they provide a coach to help. So it's been really, uh, it's been powerful. I, as a priest, it's been really interesting to feel the difference between writing a sermon and writing an article. Um, oh yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm very grateful for, and, and was kind of shocked when I, the first article I published, um, I forget how you summarized it, Sam. Um, just now, but like how to do social justice in Nowheresville. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think the official title. My I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was I was surprised how much feedback I got on it. It was really moving, um, and I guess I'm someone who writes to know what I think. So it's I I value writing. It's just a practice to kind of know where I stand and. I wrote that article just having moved to this farmhouse and having left behind my community organizing worlds in Boston and then in Brattleboro and thinking, oh no, how am I, how can I meet this moment? And I don't want to let what I've been trained in go to waste. Um, so it was powerful to have to work through that. And for our listeners, the title of the article is Moving to the Family Farm, Can I Work for Racial Justice When I Live on a Dirt Road? Um, we'll put it in the show notes too, but, you know, I think it, as I'm hearing you talking and thinking about um, this article, I feel like even those of us who, um, you know, live in suburbs or live in towns or, you know, I'm in a college town. I was struck when I, when this, when your article came out and I saw it um, probably in the Facebook feed, this, that, that question grabbed me because even as an urban, you know, small, small city town dweller. There's something that I think is so alluring to the idea of moving to the family farm, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's some kind of like, like narrative about that and something so, so um, kind of wholesome and, and, and aren't we all maybe called back to the, to the family farm. And then, so to really put in juxtaposition of this moment where, well, I mean, it's not a moment that we need to work for racial justice. That's a generation long uh, work. 
but this moment where that's being raised up to to ask those questions so um specifically i feel like it's really uh kind of caught me off guard because i think we also still hear so much about the rural urban divide in terms of politics and i mean you're in vermont so it's maybe not quite the same rural urban divide that sam is dealing with or that you know i saw in ohio um but i think even for those of us who are not living rurally i think we could be caught in some of the same questions of if i'm putting my focus on my little backyard garden and trying to trying to do back to the land in my you know my urban suburban neighborhood um can i do that and work for racial justice like how are those things actually intertwined and um something that derek our our new um co Derek western our new co-host talked about this summer was this idea that he used to go to the garden to find peace and solace and then as he did more digging and work in food justice and racial justice and racial inequality linked to the food systems and food apartheid that he go to the garden and be convicted to keep doing the work mm. for justice. And so I think that that tie together feels like it's embodied in this in this question. And so I think think what you're wrestling with is not necessarily unique to your particular particularity and particular place. And I, I'm really um, I'm really grateful for your willingness to wrestle with it out loud and to yeah. um, keep sharing what what you're discovering in the tension there because I think that there's there's something that many of us need to be wrestling alongside with. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, you know, on the one hand, it felt like a question I've been wrestling with, you know, for a long time. I mean, what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a good life as a white, you know, wealthy? Yeah, that's obviously class is complicated, but as a white person who has two Harvard degrees and um, yeah, has food on the table um, and as a man and as a married yeah, cisgender straight man. So yeah, the on the one hand, it's sort of that. And then I think particularly the dirt road piece or what really felt acute and still does just living here is um, there's almost a guilt that has bubbled up with moving here. I think not just sort of the classic white that guilt, but like, oh man, I've dreamed of living here for 20 years. Like ever since I was 21. I was like, you know, other people were like, oh, I want to move to New York. Oh, I want to go to Hollywood. And it was like, I think I want to move to Vermont and work with people with disabilities. And it was like, whoa, where is that coming from? And it's like, wow, well, now I'm now I'm doing it. And it's um, I think I always had some notion like, you know, following your soul or I forget what the language is. Um, the really helpful piece in the article was um, Michael Eric Dyson's um and Jim Wallace's words around the importance of soul work, at least that would be my language for it. Um, anyway, that that actually accepting and following that, there's both a joy to it, but also a, like, uh, it's hard. Uh, what's hard about it? It just requires me to accept grace. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess that feels hard. 
Was it that question of how can I heal from the idolatry of whiteness that has separated me from God and fulfill my sense of destiny in this place? What does it look like to do social justice for the sake of my own soul as well as others? Yeah. That the, yeah, so that's from Wallace and Dyson. Yeah, thanks. So yeah. What, does that, what does that look like? Like, how do we, how do we separate from an idolatry of whiteness in areas that are, you know, explicitly white or culture or, or a culture that can be explicitly white um whether it's you know our geographic location or even and let's let's bring us into the conversation um our our denominations or our, our our faith landscapes as well sort of what are some of the answers that you have and i'm sure holding them loosely as we all we all learn this but what are some of those answers you're wrestling with yeah well two things come to mind one is a um a framework from the Momentum Community, which is a movement building training uh, organization that I had some interactions with in Boston. They would talk about three different sort of types of change. I think it was personal transformation, alternative communities, and then advocacy and justice. So just, I think they're like multiple layers to focus on or multiple levels. Um, and I was, I, I do chuckle when people call where I live a rural community because on one hand there's a dirt road and you know I can look right now at a dairy barn and pasture and apple trees. On the other hand, um, the there's a bird like a really high end hamburger place um, that's about eight minutes and it's at the base of Stratton Ski Mountain. And there are people from New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. It's very hard to find a Vermont license plate there. Um, the real estate here is like through the roof. I think Vermont's one of like the sixth most expensive places to live in the country. So they're just extremes of wealth and poverty. And like the connection to the rural past is pretty, pretty faint, frankly. Um, and if, so if someone wants to like start a farm here, it's like, well, you got to compete with someone who wants to, you know, as an investment banker and wants to buy a ski home. So it's, it's pretty tough. So that's, I guess, part of the question too, is around like just local context. And um, it feels like a lot of the reconciliation work here is around class. And um, I don't, I don't honestly know how that starts i mean i guess as clergy there's the work of like interfaith clergy groups working for um for fair wages and that kind of thing um and it, it and i'm but i'm an, an editor <laughs> i'm curious this is how we roll like the edit we say editor so that we know to cut it out because we zoom out um but yeah, but what I hear in your story then is is this real dichotomy, um, your own personal call towards, um, you know, you've mentioned often about working with folks with disabilities, you know, folks who, um, who have, you know, who have some sense of, of lim limitations or alternative possibilities combined with, you know, this, this area that is just full of, um, of affluence. I mean, as, as, as soon as you said ski mountain, like, I don't think low income. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, even that, even as somebody who is comfortable enough, I hear, you know, a whole nother income level up when, you know, when folks are engaged in that way. And so that, that, that feels like two very polar opposites that, that you find yourself in. And I wonder how you negotiate those two things, both, both in your own soul and as a priest. Yeah. 
Wow, what a fantastic question. The the image that comes to mind is um, my uncle. I got to know so two of the two of the summers in divinity school. I came up and worked on my uncle John's dairy farm instead of doing any kind of church related work, and I got to be close with um, this young farmhand who worked with my uncle and he had a side gig like caring for an elderly person and that person was a retired um executive with some sort of oil company so really really wealthy and there was a summer a church for that sort of wealthy um community that would be open in the summer and um his job was to like take this one of his roles was to take this guy to church and I remember asking him I was like would you go in you know would you go in with them and he's like I would not be welcome in there um and that was it was just so painful to hear that and uh I follow this guy on Facebook I actually had to block him because of his like the level of like Trump sort of stuff is pretty intense and just things that I think are outright lies so it's really um but it's really helped me develop like i can see if if i had to take someone with a thousand times my wealth to church and know on some level that they were worshiping god and i wasn't welcome in there if not you know not outwardly explicit at least like knowing that my presence would be disruptions like i can i can get why i would do yeah why i would look to worship someone or something else um so i i I actually after i and this this guy commented on my article and i thought he was gonna be like ripping it to shreds for this racial justice piece but he actually sent me photos oh man i'll get here um he was like sending me photos of all the animals he has and like oh i can't i'm so happy you've moved back and can't wait to connect and mm. um so i've um i've reached out to like i think part of my work what feels like the work is just to stay in relationship with yeah. him um he doesn't work for my uncle anymore um and you know he's been to jail he's he's a complicated we're all complicated <laughs> um but yeah that's my f- first answer yeah, that's, that's so powerful. I think that piece of staying in relationship, I feel like that's the hardest and most important work we have to do right now in this country. Yeah. And not to necessarily, I mean, I love that you like had clarity that you blocked him on Facebook, but you are staying in relationship, right? Like to have that clarity of like, it doesn't mean that we are going to all agree and there's a place to call out lies and there's a need for justice and truth and to be bold about that. And, yeah. and that we're all created in the image of God and we are, we're called to stay in relationship, which I think too is different than going out, like spending all of our energy on finding people to fight with, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. it's not necessarily that like we need to find someone on the opposite end of the spectrum to, try to find some middle ground, but it's actually the genuine relationship that you have with this person that you have known for a number of years. And it's the, and it's, it's those that you 
genuine relationships you connect with a human being on human things. Mm. Yeah. And it makes me think too. I mean, I just was going back to the thinking about your image at the beginning of taking the Bible out into the woods and there is something about context that changed, changes relationship too. Like that, mm. it sounds like freed you to be able to imagine a relationship with God, with the following of Christ, with scripture in general and working together on a farm enabled you to have a relationship with this person who you probably wouldn't probably isn't coming to your church. Right. No, he definitely, yeah. He wouldn't be welcome at my church implicitly probably. Right. And um, so I just think there's maybe something in there too about context, how context, context matters in that our geographies actually enable us to connect and be in relationship in different ways. Yeah. That's something I certainly found at the garden church on a regular basis was the fact that we were outside on the streets with, it's like, I mean, certainly there are people that wouldn't have come into a church building, but also like, the outdoors was the place that belonged to the people who lived outdoors. It didn't belong to me who lived indoors. Like it, that was, it was a different space and context. And so, yes, you're living on your grandmother's farm. So you have like your family heritage there, but you're also living in a community that maybe is, is not your own, the part of you who has two Harvard degrees and is like, and and holding that tension, um, mm. there's something that sounds really powerful in that, too. Yeah. And I really admire my my Uncle John just thinking about the outdoors and context. And it, it I don't even, I wish a church could be like this, but his ability to, like, befriend, um, you know, the wealthy investment banker who is on ski vacation and wants a sleigh ride. And on top, um, he hosted 20 people who were formerly homeless um, from Boston. It is, you know, they like camped out in his backyard and he, um, yeah. And, you know, many of his workers, you know, are not, are very much local. That one guy I was seeing of him, I remember he's, him telling me he'd never left this county before. Um, so, yeah, how to create farming. You know, I, I think one of the amazing things about food ministries is that they can draw people, but I, don't, I also don't think it's a natural thing or it takes a lot of effort, either a certain personality type or I worked at the Food Project in Massachusetts, which is one of the, you know, they do youth leadership and try and bring, you know, kids of all different backgrounds and racial backgrounds and class together to work on a farm. and they put so much intention around training and um, anyway, it's, it's hard, but, it, or I, I love your vision as you share it and the possibility and that it, yeah, I know it takes a lot of effort as well. And so want to, want to bring our interview to a close as we regularly do here um, and asking you as a practitioner of all these things and living in the tension that is, that is your particular ministry. Um, we wonder what gives you hope. And our definition of hope is not just like the happy-go-lucky stuff, but the stuff that looks through the challenges of our time and still mm -hmm. keeps us getting up in the morning and doing the work that we are called to. So wondering what gives you hope? Um, oh man, I, well, just having experienced those tears, I think anything that can land me in my heart 
gives me hope. Um, so some of those things recently, one of my, you know, parishioners is recently sober and we've got a AA group meeting three times a week in our building. So just all the effort it takes to be a, a parish priest these days around COVID regulations, just to know that our buildings being used safely and thoughtfully. Um, Amen to that. That's brother. one little <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, reading the lives of the saints. This is a total Episcopal evangelist thing, but um, I, I didn't have that before. And I think there's something, you know, as a kid who loves sports and Michael Jordan and Daryl Strawberry was my favorite baseball player growing up. It's just, I love, yeah, I, I love reading about sort of having Christian heroes and specifically in this corner of the world, Jonathan Daniels, who um, was a civil rights activist and murdered in Alabama and um, his life and ministry gives me a lot of hope. Um, yeah, uh, another little Episcopal pitch. Again, I didn't plan this, but praying morning, evening prayer and coming like reading scripture. I never others otherwise read. So right now morning prayers has us reading Ecclesiasticus, um, you know, in the apocryphal text and, um, oh man, it's so good. So scripture gives me hope. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess just relationships where I feel like I can be totally honest, you know, talking about soul work, just when I can, any moment where I'm part of another person, you know, living more deeply in their soul or myself, that just is an incredible source of hope. So sorry for such a cheesy Episcopal answer, but that's what I got. But the idea that our faith traditions still give us hope. And that they, they, you know, wherever we find ourselves, that as much as we bellyache at times about the challenges of being in faith communities and leading those faith communities, um, the fact that they still have these these deep wells of wisdom that continue to speak to us. Um, mm. And that those wells of wisdom are shaped by the land that we find ourselves in, um, all mm. these coming together. Um, so, no, like that is that is the inspiration that I hear from your story. Well, I would love to keep talking and I'm really looking forward to hearing what happens on that on that farm there and um yeah and me too uh look forward to visiting it sometime when there's not a, like a pandemic going on um, <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for taking time and for thank sharing you your story and um if people want to follow your writing and hear more about what's going on in your world is there a place people can find you um yeah so bearings online is the name of the the journal where my writing appears and um that's probably the the best place to look there's of course facebook duncan hilton um but those are the two places perfect very good great. well duncan it is great to reconnect with you again after hanging out at wake um and reading what you're doing um we are just very grateful to call you a colleague in ministry um and thank you also not uh, for bringing you know your passion for your farm, um, for your area, all of that is is is. A Furthermore, I mean, Anna, we're doing a better job of making this not a Maryland centric podcast. I feel like that should be said yes. as well. So I got so a North we got a little more doing <laughs> So, Duncan, thanks so much. We look forward to hanging out again soon. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm. The Garden Church and the Keep and Tell. 
Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deaver. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.